0: Hey, everybody, it is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, and today on our show...
1: There's a part of me that wants to be a hero, but uh, as I get older, that kind of goes away because I don't think I could physically be a hero.
0: Well, he may be too old these days to act the hero, but certainly not too old to draw heroes, which is something that Dean Haspiel has been doing since he was a kid. Dean is a well-known comic book artist, an award-winning one, and he has um, drawn just about every variety of comic you can think of, from traditional superhero stories with guys in tights to uh, alt-comics based on real lives, including his own, and also those of the writers Harvey Pekar and Jonathan Ames. In fact, uh, Harvey Pekar was on this show some years ago talking about an autobiographical graphic novel called The Quitter. Well, that was drawn by Dean. And then uh, Jonathan Ames is on, uh, sometime later talking about his semi-autobiographical graphic novel called The Alcoholic, which was also drawn by Dean. Jonathan and uh, Dean Haspiel are old friends, and uh, when Jonathan created the HBO TV sitcom Bored to Death, one of the characters, a cartoonist named Ray, played by Zach Galifianakis, was inspired by Dean. And uh, Dean's drawings were used in the opening credits, which happened to win an Emmy, And uh, his cartoons were liberally sprinkled throughout the show during its three-year run. Well, having uh, talked about Dean's work with other people, it is now time to talk to the man himself. I got together with Dean to talk about his career as a comic artist and also about his life, which turns out to be quite colorful and uh, comic-worthy, you might say. Well, in fact, I am saying it. First of all, Dean, I want to say that I would be sorely disappointed if at some point during this conversation you do not refer to yourself in the third person as Deanie Weenie." <laughs> How did you know about that? Because I read your stuff, and oh, your your story about being at the Yaddo Artists' Colony. Oh, my God. And that was interesting to me because, you know, I mean, I, I'm just going to guess here that maybe 15, 20 years ago or more, Yaddo would never have thought of uh, bringing a comic book artist in, right, along with the poets and stuff? I I
1: don't think so. I mean, dollars and donuts, you'd probably be right about that. And I don't think it's necessarily even like an elitist thing or anything like that. I just think, you know, for so long, comic books and cartoonists weren't taken as seriously as they are today, or I imagine that they are today. It's become like equal as to film and literature and song. And I always felt that way as a kid. But as a kid, I was told, no, this is baby stuff. This is for, you know, nine-year-old boys. And yes, maybe you're introduced to comics as a nine-year-old boy or whatever, however old you are as a kid. But, like, then it doesn't necessarily have to stay there. And it's up to the cartoonists to expand that idea and, and change it. I mean, honestly, if someone said to me today, like, well, I don't know where to start. What kind of comic would I read? I'd ask them what they like to read. You know, what genre, what, what subject, and, and I'll bet there is a comic book out there for them. You know, I know there is in Japan. You know, <laughs> Japan runs the gamut everywhere. You know, they do comics about shoes in Japan. Really? Um, yeah, it's insane. And, and, but they also, like, they breed that in their culture to have comics everywhere and be part of the culture without judgment.
0: At what point, Dean, did you start to think, I want to do this, I really want to do this for the rest of my life?
1: I think I was cursed at age 12. I became unemployable because I wasn't considering anything else. I always wanted to write and draw stories. And I think I grew up in a household where my father was a great orator and told great stories. My mother told great stories. I mean, bottom line, a story, a long story is like a joke. You know, it's got a beginning, middle, and a punchline. So, like, I was also around people who were, you know, very funny and, and told great jokes. So I was always thinking about story. Ultimately, I just wanted to show stories. That's the only way I can put it, showing stories.
0: At that age, a lot of us were into reading stories, consuming them, and the escape that we got from going into stories that were, were already created. But to create them yourself, that's that's a really different thing.
1: I was around creative people. My parents were creative. My godmother was Shelly Winters. I'm on planet Earth because my godmother introduced my parents. So I was always hanging out on Shelley Winters, or we would go to her house, and I'd be fighting over the remote control with Al Pacino, and Robert De Niro used to babysit me. And so, you know, I was around, like, story makers and, and, and you know, as, as actors.
0: So your parents, were, were they in show business?
1: How did they know all these people? Okay, so my mom comes from Gross Point, Michigan, and I believe she was in some kind of arts and communications major, where somehow... I believe Shelley went to Michigan to uh, I don't know to t- give a talk or be part of something, and that's how she met my. That's how my mother met Shelley, and then my dad knew Marilyn Monroe the late the last eight years of her life, and so he would meet and befriend Jane Mansfield and Kim Novak and Shelley and a whole bunch of other people, and then actually today of all days, my mother just posted on Facebook that today's the 50th anniversary, 50 years when she decided to come to New York for a four-day weekend and never left. And that weekend, she came in, and she really fell in love with New York. And she called up Shelly, and she said, Hey, you know what? I'm thinking about staying. Do you know of anybody that knows of any apartments? And she said, Sure. Uh, My friend James Hasfield uh, might know some. So my mother spoke to my father, and uh, little by small, got together. And then, you know, I was born.
0: You sort of said how your your mom met Shelley Winters, so there's uh, you know the connection with the famous actress on that side. But your dad was also a friend. Okay, of My Mar- dad
1: was basically like a street kid. Like he had a really awful childhood. He he was a product of you know um, poor people and, and like you know a tough situation. He never knew his father. His mother, my grandmother had to work like three jobs and that kind of stuff. And he, uh, at age 16, uh, you know, living on his own, uh, had kind of went, went to a movie theater and discovered Marilyn Rowe and then found out that she was in town and he went over to meet her. And I think in his first meeting, uh, he asked her for a kiss on the cheek and she gave him one. And I think he kind of fell in love with her. And I always thought that, you know, Marilyn, to my father, was kind of like an angel in his life because he was having such a tough time. And then it's like, Hollywood, beautiful superstar, you know, gives him a peck on the cheek, and like it kind of like, changed his world, you know? And then from there, they they created a friendship until she passed away. But yeah, my father grew up to be basically a writer. My father's written several books, and he wrote a ton of articles for, for film magazines. My mother started as a secretary at the New York State Council of the Arts until she graduated to become deputy director. She worked there for 30 years. So I, I grew up in a creative household. So much so that when I would draw a lot, or you know, write or whatever I did, I was never discouraged. I was always encouraged.
0: I, I want to talk about your career and not all those celebrities you mentioned a moment ago, but I can't let one thing you said pass. Uh-huh. That uh, Robert De Niro was your babysitter.
1: <laughs> That's what I've been told. Now I don't remember this because I was a baby, but yeah, I've been told that. And I remember seeing like taxi drivers for the first time. I was like, oh my god. Best movie ever, and I love this guy, Rob De Niro. And I would have a conversation at one point, and I would bring it up to my mom and my parents, like, oh, I love Rob De Niro. And they're like, oh, you know, he's the baby see- you. And I'm like, what are you talking <laughs> What What does that even mean? They're like, yeah, because because of Shelly. He knew Shelly. And when he was younger and a couple times we need somebody, I was like, are you kidding me? Like, I, I couldn't grasp that concept. And I remember um, one time driving with my mother in the city, and we were talking actually about Robert De Niro in the car when we come to a red light. And on the corner is Robert De Niro standing there. And I'm like, Mom, look over there. And I hadn't I hadn't met him, meaning consciously met him. Like, I obviously had met him as a baby, you know, but not uh, that a memory that I had. And my mom calls over and says, Bobby, as if she knows him. And he goes, Barbara? And he walks over and he looks at me and he goes, is that Dean? And I I can't tell you how, like, freaked out I was by that, that familiarity, you know? But that was me having a fan appreciation of his work. I'm a fan. I'm a fan of comics. Even though I make them, I guess I'm a great fan of them, you know? And I'm a fan of certain movies and actors and musicians and writers and poets. And, you know, you build your own library, your own inventory of who you love and who you aspire to and admire.
0: Well, what were the comics that inflamed your imagination and uh, desire to be a comic artist when you I were young? I think
1: ultimate, the ultimate comic that I think I was like, okay, someday I hope to be able to contribute to this was The Fantastic Four. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I, I, I grew up watching, you know, Batman on TV and reading Spider-Man comics and Batman and Shazam, but something about The Fantastic Four, uh, and I think it's because growing up, my, my parents used to fight a lot, and sometimes my dad would, you know, spank me or, or, you know, be a little abusive. And I think what I was striving for in the Fantastic Four comics was the idea of spam. You know, this idea of, like, you know, uh, a, 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 a posse, a, a, a group that stuck together through thick and thin.
0: You know, I was reading the same comic books when I was young, mm-hmm. and there was, of course, the cosmic uh stuff that jack kirby the artist got into these grand images of of mind-boggling you know yeah. complexity and uh vastness but it was also very rooted in new york there were references to street names in new york there yeah. was the way of talking and all that now i didn't grow up in new york so for me even that was exotic but what was it well, you like
1: yancey street, exactly. street exactly exactly yeah.
2: yeah
0: i know yeah, <laughs> But still, for me, even the New York references and the cityscapes were really, really um, exotic in, in the Fantastic Four and, say, Spider-Man. Whereas for you, you were living there. So yeah. that was like home.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up looking at the way he drew those buildings, which, you know, half of them are made up. But, you know, he lived in a brownstone culture, you know, down in the Lower East Side. And I believe he also lived in Brooklyn, as did Will Eisner. And, you know, look at those guys. New York is a character. And, and the Baxter building, you know, was this fantastical place where a rocket ship could, could fly out of it, you know, uh, in the Fantastic Four. And yeah, I, I, I guess I always loved that aspect. And, and that's kind of what Marvel Comics is about. Marvel is about, you know, rooting their characters in the reality of our, you know, modern world throughout the years. they was like Doctor Strange lived, you know, on Bleecker Street, you know, and, and, you know, the Fantastic Four were in Midtown and, and uh, Spider-Man came from Queens. And, you know, I think that's another reason why people could relate to these characters a little bit closer was because it, it felt like, oh, you could look out your window and see Spider-Man swing by. And I think that that's something that I, it's carried over into my own work. And, and of course, in my memoirs as well, because I'm drawing where it happened.
0: Yeah, yeah. So what was your first actual job in the comic industry?
1: My first actual job was working as an assistant for Bill Sienkiewicz in 1985 on uh, the series he was working on was New Mutants, written by Chris Claremont. And then toward the end of my year-long tenure with him, he started uh, working on Electra Assassin with Frank Miller. So I worked on the first issue of that. And down the hall with Howard Chaikin and uh, Walt Simonson. And I also worked on comics with them on American Flag and Thor.
0: So these are some really well-known uh, people and comics. What were you doing exactly when you say you were working on them?
1: I was working on backgrounds. I was, uh, for Bill Tienkiewicz, I was either working on backgrounds with, uh, you know, inking over some of his lines or contributing my own little ideas of the backgrounds, what they were indicated, and erasing pages. And basically the same thing for uh, Howard Chakin on American Flag.
0: Interesting. You know, I think for people who don't know that business, they might imagine that it's like one person creating the whole thing but it's really quite an assembly line it sounds like it,
1: it, well for a monthly book for a monthly book a lot of artists have a system yeah I mean you know Otomo Katsuhiro who did Akira he's a famous Japanese artist and Akira is this great movie that was you know derived from a comic book series and I believe he had like 15 assistants uh-huh. there was one person that only drew the cars you know, uh, oh, really just buildings, so that kind of stuff.
0: Uh, when did you move from, you know, dealing with sort of fantasy characters, the traditional stuff of comics, whether they're superheroes or villains or, you know, really broad fictional characters to stuff that was more intimate, autobiographical?
1: You know, growing up reading Fantastic Four, Shazam, Superman, Batman, I then stumbled upon American Splendor by Harvey Picard. And uh, right next to another comic book series called Yummy Fur by Chester Brown. And I realized early on that, oh, wait, I don't just have to, you know, one day maybe pencil the Fantastic Four. I could create my own universe or I could tell stories about my life. That's what I discovered. And then at one point, me and my friend Josh Neufeld, I believe in 1995 or 96, uh, uh, created a two-man anthology called Keyhole. And Josh's comics were more rooted in reality and autobio. He would tell travel stories and stuff like that. And I was more interested in kind of creating my own little, like, you know, avatars or heroes or crime stories. But as a challenge to show that I could do it, too, I decided, OK, Josh, I'll do some autobio as well. And I would do, write and draw these little short stories uh, and also in hopes of actually getting, you know, hired by uh, Harvey Picard to draw some American Splendor. Oh wow! So I always kept it wide open, uh, but I wasn't as interested in autobio as I was in superhero, or Uh fantasy, as you put it. But little by small, that's how I got known. After doing a few American Splendor comics with Pixar, at that time I was an assistant to Ted Hope, the movie producer uh, for Good Machine, and I discovered that he too was a comic book fan. And I suggested to him, I said, hey, what about you know making an American Splendor movie? I know Harvey. I'm working for him. He thought that was a great idea. Uh, I set up a phone call conversation, and a year and a half later, they had a Sundance award-winning movie.
0: But you were the genius who suggested that because it, it really turned out to be a really good movie and certainly Thank one of you. the best adaptations of a comic into a movie, in my opinion—
1: uh, ever. to this day to this day I, I agree i actually saw it recently and i was i was bowled over i was like wow it still really works and it's really unique it
2: is and it's yeah. brilliantly
1: uh made so yeah i mean so I, as a thank you um harvey wanted to uh you know maybe do something more substantial with me and that's where we went and did the quitter the graphic novel and then i did two other memoir graphic novels with two other writers uh, and and I was I was kind of going away from my my you know primary interest of doing superheroes.
0: Oh, that's fascinating. So let's back up a bit and talk about that whole movement in comic books of just doing really ordinary, mundane stories about life. Was Harvey Pekar the first guy to do that? I mean, American Splendor. I think it came out in the eighties, and it was just stories of his sometimes humdrum life in Cleveland as a file clerk. Uh, but it really worked and he had great artists he had you he had Robert Crumb he had you know just all kinds of great people uh, drawing for him
1: his comic I would I would hazard to say was the first one to really dig deep into the quotidian life you know representing the quotidian life yeah Uh, and there were other artists like Joe Mack and, you know, uh, gosh, I mean, tons of, you know, uh, I guess Linda Barry, does she do autobiography? I know it's very personal. Well, but there was a, yeah, her stories are just, definitely
0: based on her own life, though they they featured fictional characters.
1: Right. But you could tell, you yeah. know, like, they weren't superheroes, and so they're coming yeah. from somewhere. Yep. <laughs> uh, so yeah, there's a, there's a great list of, of, you know, autobiography artists. And yeah, the tradition, I believe, for a while was the humdrum version. And that was something that I was not interested in, to be honest. I would read it and I would, you know, I understood it, but if I was actually going to put down some of my life stories, I wanted to be the more exciting stories. And I was very aware of that. Uh, so when I would dabble in, in memoir, I would try to tell something either extremely personal or almost cringeworthy, which some stuff I haven't even reprinted because they're that cringeworthy oh, no. or, uh, <laughs> you know, try to tell a story that kind of like, could last could, would test time. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, yeah. Like, there's autobio that, like, is very rooted in a, in a specific time and space, but then there's, like, autobio that, that can be, like, a classic story that everyone can relate to despite whether it's a landline or a cell phone or what city it was in. You know, to me, like, there are certain kinds of stories that are just universal, and that's the kind of stuff that I that I care about telling, you know, whether it's about love or heartbreak or a certain kind of crime or an observation.
0: Well, your most recent uh, comic, Beef with Tomato, which is the story of uh, you moving from Manhattan to Brooklyn, uh, was it in the 90s?
1: Uh, Yeah, that happened in 97.
0: And it's a collection of vignettes and short pieces of things that happened to you. And they range from really dramatic, like, you know, being hit by a car. You were acting the part of a uh, purse snatcher (laughs) in a movie, and some would-be do-gooder decided to run you down with his car.
1: Yeah, that was f***ed up. Talk about method acting.
0: I always wondered if I saw Crime in Progress, whether I should actually... Try to run the, the perpetrator over. If I mean, if it was a really horrific crime,
1: but it wasn't even a horrific crime. It was like at worst, if they if they took what I was doing for real, I snatched the lady. Right, right. That, wasn't and that worthy, was They trying to kill me.
0: Yeah, that was not worthy of uh, being run over. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. uh, like I say, you got that kind of drama, and you've got some really weird, sort of only in the city kinds of incidents. Mm-hmm. A relationship that you formed with um, an exhibitionist. I guess that's the old-fashioned term. I don't know if there's a politically correct term now, like sexual or something. Yeah, but, right. But uh, is a woman who uh, stood in front of her apartment window mm-hmm. doing things mm-hmm. for onlookers, including you, and you actually got to know her.
1: You know, it's funny. Not only did I get to know her, but at the very end of the story, I, I talk about her having a relationship with another person with an aquiline nose or aquiline nose. Yes, yes. That's John the Name. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> That's John the Name's <laughs> weird little cameo in a sentence. Uh, and we didn't know each other back then. Oh, really? We, we discovered that years later after I met him in like 2001 that he used to go hang out on this very street because he dated a girl for a little while. Uh, and we, we, we matched up and realized that was the same girl.
0: Oh, that's hilarious. We should say for listeners that, A, if they listen to the show, they know Jonathan's been on the show a number of times over the years, most recently, just two weeks ago. And it was through him that I connected with you, because you and Jonathan have worked together on a lot of projects. Uh, We might as well talk about that. Um, Sure. Well, first, let's just uh, read from Jonathan's introduction to your latest book, Beef with Tomato. (laughs) I met Dean Haspiel in 2001. He came up to me in a cafe on Smith Street in Brooklyn. He said he had read and enjoyed a column I used to write for the now-defunct New York Press. He went on to tell me that I should read his comics and that we should be friends. Dean is a very gregarious and confident person. I did what he said. I read his comics and became his friend. I'm very glad I listened to him on both fronts. Uh, So you just walked right up to Jonathan, who at that time was writing a kind of interesting and kind of crazy column in the New York Press about some uh, wild stuff that he was doing. And uh, we've talked to Jonathan about that on the show. But then you drew a graphic novel of his called The Alcoholic. Right. Part fiction, part autobiography. And then you guys got together on um, Board to Death, the HBO TV right. series, right? Right. Did Jonathan have you in mind uh, from the beginning as sort of model for um, the Zach Galifianakis character, Ray?
1: Well, uh, so Just to step back for one second, Ray, and and just it goes to my nature. Like I said, when I admire someone and I recognize them, I I tend to be jerk react by going up and saying thank you. So I think that first meeting was just me going up to John and saying thank you. Because like for a few months before I met him, I was talking to my friend Bob Fingerman, who's another cartoonist, and he also does auto bio as well. And we were reading like some of Jonathan Ames's columns to each other, cracking up. (laughs) Or, or from book collections. It's just like fun little things to kind of do. So it was really cool to suddenly meet this guy that whose who, you know, story that I've been reading to other friends. Uh, and he was very open uh, to it and and kind. And yeah, I guess I did kind of like bully him a little bit to be my friend, but then we <laughs> turned out to be friends. And I'd always loved his writing, so I said we should try to do something together, and that's where The Alcoholic came about. Uh, that was published by DC Vertical Comics. And then when he had written a short story that a, a TV producer picked up on, and the short story was, was kind of like Chandan dabbling to his own little detective kind of mind. And uh, it was a singular character story. When they were fleshing out the TV series is when he realized he needed to create a little en- ensemble, you know, cast. And because we've been hanging out, I guess that's where he decided, okay, let me do a version. Or something loosely based on Dean, which was to be a cartoonist pal, uh, played by Zach Galifianakis, and uh, and of course Ted Danson played uh, another character, which was I believe like probably his best role of his career. He was so amazing. Yeah, that, I agree. Yeah. Um, but when the series was done, so I drew all, I drew the, the comic book pages and comic book art that the that the Ray character uh, draws, and then I. I, I won an Emmy for helping uh, with the opening credit sequence uh, for the show. Uh, but when I look back at the at the show, the three years, uh, I, I realize that that the Ted Danson, Zach, and Jason Schwartzman characters were all iterations of Jonathan, more than uh-huh. anything else.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Kind of like you know the id, the ego, and the future self, in a way. You know, and, and that's how I kind of interpret those characterizations, because like if you I mean talking to me right now for about an hour. You can tell how very different I am from the the character uh, that Zach Galifianakis plays. Yeah, uh, in the show. Yeah. Uh, so I never took that as being me at all. Right. Uh, he, some of his background story was was derived from my life, and you know naturally some of his uh, qualms. Uh, but I really felt like he was more Jonathan. Like those three characters were all Jonathan.
0: You know, it's it's funny talking about Jonathan's work in the context of a bigger conversation about comic books, because Jonathan came from a, a background as a uh, as a serious novelist right out of college. Yep. And I don't think he was into comic books before you guys collaborated. Maybe I'm wrong about that. But when I look back at Bored to Death and I look at Zach Galifianakis, Jason Schwartzman, and Ted Danson and their adventures, doesn't that seem like a, a trio of kind of funny superheroes, you know?
1: It, it really is in that way. And, and just to correct one thing, uh, John did grow up reading The Avengers. Oh, and did he? The so he oh. was, he was a, a, a somewhat of a fan.
0: I didn't know that. You know, he didn't
1: keep up with it, but he he was a fan. In fact, he always if you ever talk to him again about it, uh, there was this famous story called The Korvac, Korvac Saga that he was very disappointed in. <laughs> I think it was the comic that <laughs> maybe made him stop reading comics for a while. Uh, it was an Avenger story, but um, yeah, I, I agree. He created this like team, this little team of adventurers. Yeah. And the thing that's beautiful about John Den's work, uh, especially in television, is that there are no hard, uh, black and white villains and heroes. Everyone is gray. Everyone has a lot of, you know, has mistakes. Uh, or or the, no one's a knight in shining armor. And I feel like maybe what happened to Border Death, where it got lost in the mix of television, is that they, these were hopeful characters that, you know, every episode were kind of playful and were, were a little bit oddball and goofy. But also, I mean, it, I, I feel like the show could have been made in the 1950s, you know? Like, oh, yeah. uh, and I don't know, as much as I love a Breaking Bad, how do you compete with those kinds of TV shows being made today, which were much more bleak and dark, you know? And, and now he's doing it again with Blunt Talk. And and I hope that he prevails, because I love these characters that he writes and these stories that he tells, because no one's doing them.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, by the way, um, there were no villains, perhaps, in Bored Death, but wasn't uh, John Hodgman pretty much of a dick?
1: Oh, I mean, yeah, they're <laughs> dicks. Dicks galore. In fact, in fact, that's what I drew. <laughs> think about it. <laughs> yeah, is amazing. Especially when he got the mustache. Holy s***. <laughs> He's like some, like, Hamburglar or something, you know?
0: <laughs> he loves that thing, though. He still has it, right?
1: I know. He still has it. It's amazing.
0: <laughs> I had him on the show, and I, I think it was pretty early in his mustache phase. Uh-huh. And I, had, it was a phone interview, so I had him rub the mustache on the phone just so people could hear what it sounded nice. like on the radio nice. uh, since they couldn't see it. Uh, well, he's
1: got such a boyish look, you know, such a egghead, you know, like a guy who's so smart, yeah. that maybe it balances him out. I don't know. I don't know what it is.
0: Do, do you know him personally at all?
1: I've, I've uh, to say, no him personally. I mean, yes, but we're not friends. We don't hang out or anything. But whenever I've seen him on the street, you know, we acknowledge each other and hang out and talk for 10 or 15 minutes, you know? uh one day we'll have each other for dinner he
0: he seems to always be in character you know in some way or other as this kind of stuffy pseudo academic dude yes. uh old fashioned expert windbag uh <laughs> does john ever just like drop that completely and act differently I,
1: I, maybe maybe after midnight i haven't hung <laughs> out with him after midnight you know like he definitely uh is who he is like, in that way, I think that's kind of beautiful. Like, you know, when you hire Jack Nicholson, you're not really hiring, you know, someone to play a, a, anybody but Jack Nicholson, <laughs> that's true. you know? That's true. And I feel like John Hodgman is like that. You're you're getting what, what what's in front of you, you know? And that is who he is.
0: It's funny. You're saying uh, After Midnight reminds me of a quote from your dad in uh, your yeah. comic, uh, Beef with Tomato, where he said to you when you were young, he said, There are things you would never consider doing before midnight? Yeah. What does that mean?
1: Uh, uh, Or what did he mean? My dad, very interesting. Like, my dad sometimes would come home, and he was very honest and very uh, authentic in that he would just tell me, maybe it's because I was like a confessional to him or something, but he would just tell me, like, the most incredible things he had done that were awful, and and his whole point was like there are definitely things you would never consider. And the word is consider that has to pop uh before midnight. And I think what it means is he's giving a he's giving a deadline, a time zone of like, you know, we all uh try to do the right thing morally, but sometimes the clock ticks one minute more and suddenly you're in a situation. You know, you put yourself out there and you're confronted by and I think the idea of midnight is that naughtier things happen late at night. You know, they also happen during the day, of course. But my dad would make himself available for drama. And there were times when he would stop uh, mugging. I mean, he was like a cop in a way. Or he would, like, stop, you know, some a woman from being raped. But then there were other times when he'd be invited into a sexual public act, you know, in the park. And he would tell me these things as if it's okay, you know? And again, I'm trying not to judge or anything, and and anybody could understand if I would cringe and be like, what the hell are you talking about, Dad? But I think it, the idea that, you know, once you stay at a place long enough, something is bound to happen. I would sometimes go to, like, a party or a bar or whatever, and I'd be with some people and they'd be like, I'm really bored right now. Why is anything happening? And I would say to them, just wait. Just wait. You never know what's going to happen. Also, contribute to the situation, don't just stand there. (laughs) I feel like that's what I learned from my father.
0: When you say he did really terrible things, like, I don't know if you can tell us much, but.
1: Yeah, I don't know how much I could actually reveal. And, and it's not about saving it for a future book because, you know, there are just some awful things that he was involved in, but also, like I said, more than not, he was kind of acting as like some kind of like hero, like some kind of John Carpenter character from the seventies or eighties, you know, where, he would be thrust into a situation where uh, he morally would take over a bad situation. So that's what I kind of basically mean when I say awful. Like, you know, he would beat the shit out of someone who was f***ing with anybody. And most people would turn a blind eye. You know, we live in a world right now with social justice warriors where they, they're they trying to create safe spaces on the Internet. And like, you know, and and everyone is culpable for what they're not doing or what they are doing. My dad went out in the streets, okay, late at night, uh, and this was after my mom left him. So he had a lot of time on his hands and a lot, you know, and, and also whatever went on in his childhood was probably coming back at him. And I feel like, you know, he was kind of like a cop, uh, an unsanctioned, unorthodox cop to the world, or at least in the park. You know, he would go to uh, Riverside Park and hang out and i'm sure he was involved in in certain kinds of acts that that again i don't even want to like consider myself right now um but he was he is a fascinating uh person and fascinating character study because of that
0: were you afraid of him did you look up to him did you did you worship I him i was him?
1: afraid and and admired him uh-huh. you know in in a way uh because you know He would take mortality into his own hands uh, on a regular basis, and he never ran away from anything.
0: Wow. Uh, There's another story in Beef with Tomato when you were young and going to, I guess, a favorite restaurant of your family. is a Chinese restaurant.
1: Yeah, Bohop.
0: Is it in Chinatown, or where is it?
1: Yep, 17 Mott Street.
0: Okay. And... This is a true story, right? The story of a of a Greek gangster who came into the restaurant and attempted to. Oh,
1: I'm sorry, no, that's not Walhop. That's a different. That was a rickshaw. I think was called And we were sitting in in a restaurant eating, and uh, we got up, and this Greek gangster. We didn't know he was a Greek gangster at the time. And he was speaking Greek. <laughs> started yelling at me and my father because we didn't bust our trays, and my dad looked at him like, "What the f- are you pointing the fingers at us for?" And then the guy. I don't, how did I tell the story? Did my father throw the bus tray at him?
0: The only bit in the comic book is you leaping up when the guy reaches into his jacket for a gun. Okay.
1: There was a part of the story I probably cut out where there was an interaction between, with with an actual bus tray. I can't remember. It's possible my dad went over him, oh, you want the bus tray? So he goes and throws the bus tray on the guy's table. And then the guy picks up his chair, throws it at us. We dodge it, and and he uses it as a way to then be able to grab into his chest pocket, which to me said, from all the movies i ever seen, oh, you're going for a gun right now. So the first thing I thought of was, let me throw my body against him and grab his arm and push it against him, against the wall as hard as possible. And at that point, I didn't know what was going to happen next. And what I saw was my entire family beating the shit out of his face with their fists. When you
0: say entire family, you mean mom, dad, sis? Mom,
1: my brother, and my dad all beating him up while I held him against the wall uh, and that's when we discovered, you know, he had a gun. Uh, luckily the cops came by as we were holding him down and they, and they all surrounded him and retrieved his gun and they didn't press any charges against us or anything. I guess the, the restaurant had called and he had been belligerent like, maybe before as well. He seemed, he appeared to be drunk too, you know, because he was just so like rambunctious. But yeah, I, I, I guess that's something I learned from my father. You know, there's a funny story I want to tell, if you don't mind, about my dad that might sum up, you know, uh, a part of his personality. We had a newsstand that I also bought comic books from on 79th Street and Broadway on the corner. And so we went there on a regular basis, and my dad uh, went downstairs to get the newspaper. And as he walked up to the guy that we knew at the newsstand to get the newspaper, an old woman brushes up against him. And like leans into him and then throws herself to the ground and starts screaming, that man just knocked me over. <laughs> he's trying to hurt me. He knocked me over. And like a crowd formed. And my dad was like, looked horrified. Like, what are you talking about? I didn't do anything. And he's looking at her and he's looking at the people and they're all looking at him, you know, judging him as a bad guy. And he looks over at the newspaper, the guy and the newspaper guy kind of rolls his eyes like, oh, shit. like what to do? And my dad went against better judgment says, and if you stand up, I'll knock you down again. <laughs> and all these people who are trying to be heroes suddenly, you know, uh, limp away. She kind of gets up, dusts herself off, and walks away. And my dad's standing there like this f- monster. You know, like, f- it. You want me to be, be the bad guy? I'll be the bad guy. I'm not going to, like, you know, uh, tell you guys and try to get out of this. And then another a stranger came up to him and said, thank you. That woman's been doing that all day long, and people have been paying her off to, like, shut her up. So that kind of, in a nutshell, describes my father.
0: <gasps> what a character, man. Was he, was he the inspiration for any of your comic uh, characters at any point? Um,
1: I recently did uh, uh, 10 issues with the Fox for Archie Comics. Uh-huh. They have a, a superhero line that was originally called Red Circle and now called Dark Circle. And what was interesting about this character, the Fox, is that he's a superhero with no superpowers he's a reluctant one at that. In fact, the way I was writing him was that, you know, entering in his life is that he wants to quit being the Fox because he started being the Fox as a reporter so he could draw out the story and get the story and be a journalist and kind of like provoke things. And then that way he became a freak magnet. And now the stories won't stop, you know, so it's kind of impacting his life too much and it's threatening his family so he wants to quit being the Fox. So I kind of slightly based his characterization on my father, because my father put himself out there, you know, and he's not a superhero, you know, but he he kind of did superheroic things uh, again. You know, uh, <laughs> not saying that it was a morally correct sometimes, but, you know, he is a fascinating character. So in a way, my father was my first superhero.
0: What was he doing for a living all this time?
1: Uh, writing, just writing for magazines and again, writing a few books. Oh, so he wrote a few books on Marilyn Monroe. So he's a journalist. I would say he's a journalist. I mean, not proper, you know, not like, you know, for newspapers and stuff, but for, you know, Hollywood magazines. And uh, there was a magazine he wrote for called Films and Review, um, some other kind of magazines like that. And he also, because he's probably considered the authority on Marilyn Monroe, he'll sometimes go on TV shows and, and you know, be a consultant. Huh.
0: Dean, what was it like uh, working uh, – I'm kind of circling back here um, – working with Harvey Pekar. I, I met Harvey, in fact, uh, only once uh, to interview him in part about the uh, graphic novel that you drew, that you did the artwork for. That was his story called The Quitter, about right. him growing up as a kind of angry kid, uh, had a tendency to quit stuff if he wasn't the best at it. And he also got in a lot of fistfights. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you've got some great, yeah. great panels of Harvey – cold cocking people who crossed him
1: (laughs) It surprised a lot of people that comic because that's not the kind of stuff he wrote no no yeah but he was revealing himself in a way that portrayed him as a bully in in a lot of ways and yet also i mean we, we had called that comic when we pitched it something else i had come up with a title uh that later on i used called street code and it was just an ambiguous title for harvey for me it meant something but also it was derived from a Jack Kirby's only uh, memoir comic, which is about seven pages long or something called Street Code. And I always loved that title.
2: Mm. And
1: I remember one day Harvey called me up and he was really upset. And and I think he was upset because he just wanted to admit something to the world. So he was kind of like just, you know, getting used to the idea of it. And it was it was him being vulnerable. And he called up, he was like, I, I want to change the name of that comic. I want to call it The Quitter. I want everyone in the world to know that I was a quitter. And I'm sitting there going, uh, okay, I mean, I'm not going to argue with you, but I didn't know where that came from and why he wanted the world to know that he was a quitter. Maybe he was having a bad day or maybe again, he was confronting something about himself that he didn't want to confront. Uh, and I wanted to honor that, you know, of course I would do something called the quitter and my next grab and I'll be called the alcoholic with John the Ames. And I started to wonder what the hell am I doing here in my career <laughs> between quitting and alcoholism. But, uh, you know, that's the way that ball bounces. Working with Harvey was, was really, you know, an honor, an honor because he, he is, for all intents and purposes, the person we think of when we think of comics.
0: Yeah. And of uh, deromanticized comics, comics without a trace of fantasy or, you know, <laughs> yeah. embellishment. Not
1: even a second of it. Again, <laughs> when I drew The Quitter, I think some of the more uh, hardcore American Splendor fans were a little thrown off because I think some of my superhero tendencies came out in the artwork. <laughs> yeah, well, you know? well,
0: with his large fist going into some guy's yeah. face.
1: But I'm just drawing the emotional truth. That's yeah, what yeah. I can get into, honestly. Yeah, well, like, comics do that. That's the power of comics. Yeah. They
0: work in a really interesting way psychologically, I think, and there's no other form that's quite like them, with all their I'd exaggerations.
1: Tomatoes. Like There's the observations, there's the setting. There's the reality, and then I try to dig deep into the emotional truth, and that's where the comics part happens.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, Harvey uh, Pekar was famously downcast, uh, a guy whose who's public face, at least, was with a furrowed brow and uh, rarely smiling, and a guy who seemed perpetually yeah. unhappy. Was he yeah. was he fun to work with? Was he challenging? Total to mensch.
1: Total yeah. he He would laugh. He, you know, I mean, he had a lot of anxieties and a lot of worries, yeah. you know, and that's just who he is. And hell, I relate to that, you know, on a daily basis. But, you know, maybe it, it, either because I brought it out in him or maybe that was like his dirty little secret. He basically was, I believe, a pretty enough happy guy. I mean, he, uh, he lived to his means. I don't think he ever thought he was going to go buy a yacht someday or something like that. I mean, I mean, at at, at my age, I don't think that either, you know, that's not who, who we were or are, but, uh, you know, the fact that he was able to tell his stories, you know, when he died, somebody asked me, well, how do you feel about that? And, you know, of course I was sad, but something that, you know, stuck with me was like, well, like everything that ever happened to him is basically in print. The only story he can't tell is his death. That's our story to tell. Uh so like if you're if you want to visit Harvey, just go pick up a bunch of his comic books. It's all there
0: uh-huh. Tell me about uh drawing yourself. we're talking about autobio comics uh, and you you definitely have some. The most recent one we keep mentioning beef with tomato definitely what? is, and in it, you draw yourself. When did you first draw yourself in a comic, and what sort of attributes did you give yourself
1: so I don't recall the first time I drew myself. It might've been in keyhole in possibly a story. I don't know. I don't, I don't even know what the the tale would have been about. I mean, I, I'm sure I might've drawn iterations of myself on bar napkins just for fun, because I would draw other people in really appalling ways. And the only way I would get out of it is draw myself in an appalling way, which is, you know, characterization it's cartooning, you know? um, but in terms of attributes, I mean, I've always felt, I don't think my nose is as big as I draw it. I like to draw a bumpy, big nose. I don't know why. I just feel like a nose is a real interesting character characteristic of the face. And I might draw, like, hush puppy eyes, which I kind of have. And then, you know, I've been, like, keeping a trim beard for eons now. So that's part of the face and maybe small lips. I'm trying to think what I'm thinking about drawing my face. Uh Side flock hair. And then sometimes, because of my superhero leanings, I might draw my body a little more superhero heroic than it really is, but I also then try to add a belly, you know, <laughs> a sense of a belly um, in there. And I don't like to wear clothes. I'm not on exhibitions necessarily, but I've been known for stripping and taking off my shirt a lot in public. So there's evidence out there of what I look like, you know, from the last 20 years till last week, you know? So I also have to honor that in my comics that I tend to like, you know, will take off my shirt or something like that. But when you have an opportunity to draw yourself, you know, I don't want to, I don't want it to be a total shit show either. You know, like, you know, it, it's funny to boil yourself down into, into comics terms because that's what it is. It's a reduction.
0: Uh-huh. I ask because, you know, I mean, the traditions in comic books are either the idealized body, uh, you know, the right. superhero body. Or it's like totally goofy. You know, the the form just sort of invites various kinds of distortion. And uh, I just wondered what the the feeling was to represent yourself. Do you want to be super handsome and muscular? Do you want to be completely crazy looking and grotesque?
1: I I have drawn myself in a more grotesque way. and, And, you know, I get a kick out of that. But I don't know that you, the reader, would then want to follow my journey if you were looking at some putt. (laughs) <laughs> you know I'm saying? And, I, and I don't feel like a putt either, personally. Um And I'm not saying I'm some kind of like, you know, superhero jock or hero either, you know, but I'm okay with thinking that like I'm a, a bruiser type guy, you know. What do you mean by that? I'm, you know, a guy that looks like he can take a hit and I have taken a hit, you know, and, and a guy that is willing to throw a punch if he has to, you know, I mean, Call it old school. Today, I, you know, everyone's hiding on their, their cell phones, you know, uh, ranting and outraging. To me, I'm willing to step outside and let's do this. Uh, chip off you the know? old block then, huh? Oh, I mean, like my pop. Yeah. Yeah, you know, uh, yeah, absolutely. But you know what? You know who's even harder than my dad? My mom. <laughs> you cannot f- with my mom. So, uh, yeah, and it's just an old family thing. I mean, I don't know what happened how, you know, I wrote a screenplay and the working title is The Emasculated because it, it's actually a subject that I'm concerned about. And I feel like, uh, we're living in a culture where, where men are becoming more and more emasculated by society. And again, I'm not going to sit here and, and like wave the flag for all men, but I'm getting a little tired of like how wimpy people are becoming. And I'm not saying being sensitive. I'm, I, I cry at car commercials. Okay. You know, for me growing up, you know, my, my favorite movie is like On the Waterfront. And to me, the, the swagger of a young Brando is kind of my kind of uh, landmark of what to look like and how to be. And even if it's out of date and, you know, I, I kind of don't care because that's what I'm attracted to when I think about, you know, what kind of man I want to be.
0: Well, with, with that masculine ideal you were talking about, sort of nurtured on movies and comic books, have you gone looking for situations where you could be a hero?
1: All the time. I mean, not as much lately because the freelance life keeps me at bay and change to the art table, but give me two or three extra hours a day, I would do kind of what my father did, even though I know to go against it. I do seek out, like, uh, trouble or let's call it adventure that could lead to trouble.
0: Like what? like what?
1: Um, You know, I could walk to Red Hook and, like, you know, in Red Hook over here in Brooklyn can be a shady area in places by the projects, And I could see myself just hanging out in a corner, uh, you know, waiting for something to happen and wanted to, to, to dive in. Now, again, the older I get, the stupider that is for me to do. You, you feel like you're invincible, you know, you can do anything. You know, now, I mean, I was complaining about how my back hurts just sitting at an art table. But, uh, you know, there's something in me that wants to be a fireman or a paramedic or a cop or all three at the same time. And, you know, uh, I've always gravitated towards danger or whenever there's been a car accident or, or, you know, someone being hurt. I kick myself if I don't go toward it and help them out.
0: It's interesting with that that you didn't then choose to be a cop or a firefighter or a paramedic. You know, uh, The
1: reason why I didn't become a cop is because I know in my heart of hearts that I would shoot somebody.
0: Uh huh.
1: Put a gun in my hand. And I don't know if I have the control to not shoot someone,
2: not really. you know,
1: for better or for worse. And I don't mean that in any kind of weird kind of like, you know, I, I can't wait to kill people kind of thing. I think that something irresponsible would happen with being a gun. And that is kind of how I feel about a lot of cops, to be honest. I'm like, how do you know wh- that, you know, to hold a gun and when to shoot and when not to shoot? You know, and we have all these troubles with the cops and guns these days or forever. We're just seeing it more and more because we live in a surveillance society now uh, where everything, you know, is recorded. But uh, so I don't trust myself with a gun, bottom line. And I never want to have a gun in my hand.
0: Let's talk a little bit about your um, how long does one stay at Yaddo? A month? Uh, at the.
1: Um, whenever I've gone, it's only been about three and a half to four weeks. I always go for writing. But for art, I think you can get from six to eight weeks.
0: So this is the prestigious old artists' colony retreat in upstate New York. Yeah, uh, you have to be someone to get in there, and uh, I don't
1: know. I mean,
0: uh, well, is not it all expenses that, yeah, paid? I, mean, I like,
1: think you have to have certain accolades, possibly,
2: yeah, in order to get in.
1: Yeah, I get it. I mean, it, it, I get that. I mean, because it, it, that uh, you know Yaddo and McDowell are considered the most prestigious you know exactly, art residencies yeah. in America, and I think that in order to get in, you probably have to have a pretty good resume, or at least something that recommend you besides the actual art that you're proposing. You know, whether it's story, film, you know, uh, music, uh, writing. And uh, I have been very lucky to have gotten in now three times huh. uh, out of four submissions. And uh, it really is a, a, in the true sense of the word, retreat.
0: Well, the idea is to give really worthy artists the freedom to focus on their work, and meanwhile, everything else is taken care of for them, their meals, their lodging, all that stuff. And they're pampered, you know. Um, But what I'm curious about, and I think you allude to this in a little essay you wrote about one of your experiences there uh, in uh, Beef with Tomato, which, by the way, is a comic book, but it also has short essays in it, um, short autobiographical uh, stories, and You alluded to this, that artists are sensitive, they tend to be insecure, their lives tend to be shapeless in a way, you know, people with nine-to-five jobs have structure, artists don't have that structure, so they struggle a lot, we all know that, and now now you put them all in one place together and say, okay, just do your thing, and we'll take care of the rest. What sorts of things happen?
1: Well, there is a quiet time, at least at Yado, which is the only one I've done. And that's usually from right after breakfast, let's say nine o'clock till about 4 p.m. It's called quiet time. And everyone is like, you know, kind of, you have to sit in at at your table or wherever you, you know, your studio and face the the man in the mirror. (laughs) And, and, you know, you are put in a position. You're like, okay, yeah, that's the idea. That is the concept. And you sit there. I remember the first time I was there, I felt unworthy the first week I was there. I was like, I'm a fucking fraud who the hell am I? Who do I think I am? But, you know, it did challenge me and force me to, you know, if I wasn't writing, at least I was typing. And then the typing, you know, and editing maybe becomes writing. And you do produce. It makes you produce. I mean, I've also seen other people just wallow and sit around and just, you know, uh, feign existence. And I'm like, well, that's a wasted opportunity. But, you know, a lot of people, you know, it, it, it allows you to make mistakes. You know, here they a space where you don't have to prove yourself at all you just you know you're given the time uh without anybody policing you you know you can lay down for four weeks and do nothing or you can try to make something i love that space because what it allowed me to do is as a cartoonist it allowed me to not be a cartoonist because since age 12 i always do what i wanted to do which was to make comics it allowed me to expand other aspects of myself that I've been thinking about, which is to write like a TV pilot or a screenplay or a novel. And that's what I use Yato for: is to dabble and, and to dip my toes in other arenas that matter. To
0: me. You have a you have a screenplay. I think you mentioned that you are working on or have worked on.
1: Yeah, I've actually written about four or five screenplays. The one that I finished at Yato, uh, actually, I was telling you about it before. It, the working title is "The Emasculated." I've also written a, a TV pilot, uh, co-wrote a TV pilot, that is. Most interesting, it's a novel that I've been uh, writing that I only write at Yaddo. I never seem to find time to write it outside of Yaddo, but it's like I get to revisit it there, uh, which has been a lot of fun. And to be honest, I did work on a comic book character while at Yado as well, Like even though I, it's like a no-no, uh, because I can't help myself. A no-no? Why? Uh, because I, I, my own rule, you know, you, you were talking about, you said something interesting about how, how a lot of artists, you know, maybe don't have a certain kind of discipline. And I feel like I'm very disciplined, uh, or else I couldn't get anything done because, you know, nobody's putting a gun to my head to do anything that I do. So I have to do that to myself. And so when I go to Yado, I don't want to work on comics, as I was saying before. And so the fact that I did a little bit kind of, kind of, <laughs> <laughs> goes against uh, my very own rules about yellow.
0: Oh gosh, yeah. And by the way, I wasn't saying that artists aren't disciplined. I was saying they don't have that external structure, uh, and so they right, have right. to be really disciplined. But sometimes they just they go through periods of disorientation. Self-doubt. <laughs> yeah, self doubt, disorientation. What will I do? You know, and maybe non productivity for long stretches uh, because there is nobody right. giving shape to their lives, and it's that's kind of a scary thing.
1: Well, I mean, because there's no, I mean, unless you've been like, you've been contracted, there is no guarantee that what you're spending an inordinate amount of your life on is going to go anywhere. Right. So at the end of the day, you you do it because you have to. That's the one thing I was saying earlier, like I wouldn't recommend a comic's life to anybody because, again, who reads comic books, who buys them? There's only a handful of people these days that do, but you do it because you have to. You know, any artist does what they do because they have to not because it's cool, not because they're going to get paid a lot of money or, you know, they'll become popular because of it. You do it because you have to.
0: Um, so we were talking about Yado and the routine and the fact that you spend a, a fair amount of time in solitude uh, at your work. But then, of course, there's the communal part where you're getting together for meals and drinks. Right. And, and you've got a bunch of intense, creative, needy, Uh, sometimes insecure people, sometimes lonely because they've been sitting in their rooms facing a blank page or or a blank canvas. Um, So what happens when they get together?
1: Um, I don't know if I even like it sometimes, to be honest. Uh, You can be sitting with a prickly crowd and, you know, again, maybe you're dealing with uh, people's insecurities in a very concentrated way. You know, um, it's not normal. First of all, you come to this huge table in a beautiful old mansion, you know, dining room, you're being served food, and, you know, sitting down with people who, you know, on the one hand, can be very open and very vulnerable, and that's a beautiful thing. That's what I'm attracted to. That's what I give, too. But the minute I face someone who has something of a wall, I take it personally, and I realize I can get into a scuffle. And the older I get, the more I realize, you know what, just leave those people alone. (laughs) You're not meant to talk to them. It's okay. You know? Do some
0: of them at least uh, talk about what they're wrestling with in their work? I mean, if you spend all day trying to get through, let's say, uh, a paragraph, if you're a writer, or trying to figure out how to render something, if you're a visual artist, uh, it it can be exhausting. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And what, what I actually realized in the last one, I was gravitating toward the 70-year-olds, like the people who are older, because and and one was a Pulitzer Prize-winning composer. And what a fascinating person. And yes, of course, we're all struggling. And, and, and that's where you break bread. Like, the minute you admit your vulnerability, it levels the playing field. So I don't care... If you won an award, if I won an award, or you were recognized for this, or you wrote or drew that amazing thing that I know about, it humanizes you, the vulnerability. And I feel like that's what's important. And that's where you break through the cracks. And then you can you can sit down and have a parlay. And even though one person might be talking about a different discipline from yours, you can meet in the middle because of the struggle.
2: Uh huh.
1: You know, I have one more thought that I was thinking about, like, the difference between fiction and memoir. Whereas fiction is supposed to span time, I believe, whereas memoir can be stuck in time. And one of the things I like to do in my own memoir is to span time so that it becomes, I don't know, more classic or universal. Or, and and I feel like that's what I'm striving for. And I don't know if Beef with Tomato totally does that, but I feel like there's a bunch of vignettes in, in the book that, you know, can be read at any time. It can be read now, it can be read 20 years from now. And I hope that that's. The kind of uh testament of life that I'm leaving behind with this book.
0: Yeah, I I've been struggling with that myself because so much of what I consume on a daily basis does seem like filler, uh that evaporates really fast. And I've been It's like a ticker tape. It's yeah, exactly. Tape. Yeah. Yeah. It's like sitting there reading one of those old stock tickers every day yep. all day long. <laughs> and it's and before you know it, your life is over.
1: Yeah, it's bizarre and like I remember indulging time. I recently was telling someone I'm going to go watch a movie right now. And they said, what did you say? I said, I'm going to go watch a movie. And they were like, isn't that like two hours long? I was like, yeah. They're like, <laughs> but I haven't been able to do that in years. And I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? You can't turn it off for two hours. You can't put the phone down for two hours and watch something and immerse yourself.
0: Well, Dean, I really enjoyed it. You only let me down on one uh, on one count. You never referred to yourself as Deanie Weenie. <laughs>
1: I didn't think we need to do that. I think we did that right off the bat, my friend.
0: And by the way, I uh, realize I never fully explained that Deanie Weenie reference. It is from uh, an essay that Dean included in his most recent comic, Beef with Tomato, about his time at the Yaddo Artist Colony, where he says that uh, in order to inject a little levity into otherwise serious situations, he would sometimes refer to himself in the third person as Deanie Weenie. Also, uh, Dean and I had a a little email exchange after our interview, and uh, one of the things he wanted me to know is that, quote, though I come off as an advocate for old-school masculinity, I am truly one sensitive Empathy is my spinach. Well, this has been the 7th Avenue Project, the radio show and podcast for sensitive, empathetic, spinach-eating f**ks. I hope you join us again next week when we'll be back with another show. In the meantime, you can always listen online at our website, 7thavenueproject.com or via iTunes or whatever podcast app gets you off or turns you on. I'm Robert Polly. Thank you for listening.